You're visiting the mom next door and our stories of faith. I'm glad you dropped by for a visit. Please stay a while and hear what the Lord has done in the lives of moms just like you and me. Well, hello, friends. Um, I have taken a little bit of a break this summer and I'm slowing down. And I think I told you guys about that a few uh, episodes ago, uh, just kind of plugging away, trying to get things accomplished here at my home and with my family. But I am so excited to talk to Rachel today. I want her to introduce herself. Uh, I think what we're going to be talking about, it, it's something it, to bring awareness to families. And, and that being so, um, it, this might be a good podcast for just moms and dads to listen to. It might be fearful for your children. And so I just want to encourage you to stick your earbuds in and uh, take a moment to listen to Rachel's story. It will remind us in ways we can pray. It will remind us what is happening in our world and how we need to stand on guard and be prepared. So Rachel is actually in Nashville, right? Not very far from me, maybe an hour. And she's an advocate for parents who have been falsely accused in the child welfare system. She's working on a book. Actually, she's released a book called Fractured Hope, A Mother's Fight for Justice. And she unfortunately has had experience of having her children illegally removed. So Rachel, is there anything else you'd like to add to that introduction? That about sums it up. Had my children illegally removed, but we did fight back. And by the grace of God, we did get them back. But I know too many families who were not as fortunate as we were. Yeah. And when that happens, I mean, any way it happens, it's a tragedy. So um, why don't you take me back to previous to this? I think I read that you were a businesswoman. What was your life like before this event? Yeah, I mean, my husband and I, we were married for 10 years before we decided to have children. Now, we got married very young. And, you know, in my mind, we did everything the right way (laughs) by getting married, establishing ourselves financially. I went back to school, got my master's degree, and we started a business together. He has always done cybersecurity. So he's the techie guy. And I did the business side with customer acquisitions and the sales pitches and those types of things. So once we had our business and we're financially stable, then we're like, okay, now let's start a family. So we did with our firstborn and a little background about myself. I have epilepsy. I have seizures. And one of my main triggers are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So if you have a newborn baby, you know, you ain't sleeping. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome motherhood, right? (laughs) Yes. So my first son, I had my mom and my mother-in-law actually fly from Brazil to come help me with the night shift with the baby. And then second time around, they both told me we're too old for this, (laughs) but they pulled their money together and they gave me this check at the baby shower. And they're like, we want you to go get a nanny. Oh, wow. And I'm like, you guys are the best moms ever. (laughs) That is a creative solution. And I love it that they saw the need and they said, we can't physically be there, but let us be there for you as much as we can. I love that. Yeah. So I went, you know, on a search on the hunt for a nighttime nanny where she would be working from 10 at night until six in the morning so that I could at least get those eight hours of sleep at night. So, you know, various referrals, agencies, trying to find something I could afford. I found a person who worked for an agency, but wasn't available when I needed her. 
So I asked her if she knew anybody and she told me she did know somebody that volunteered at the church nursery at her church. She had children herself. She was married to a Marine and she was wanting to get into this line of work. So I'm like, okay, perfect. So set up the interview, no red flags, right? Everything that she said was there. She was a biology major. You know, she worked at SeaWorld training dolphins. And she said she wanted to transition into this line of work. And I'm like, okay, you know, you ready to start? She said, yes. She started watching my son when he was seven days old. Oh, tiny, tiny. And, and you were in California at this point. Yes. Correct. SeaWorld. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so she started watching him when he was seven days old and everything was fine and everything was working out. Uh, one week, my husband was out of state on a business trip. He was in West Virginia and I was home alone with her watching the baby at night. And my older son was 20 months old at the time. And that was David. I woke up at about four o'clock in the morning on July 8th, which my son would have been seven weeks old by this time. And I just heard him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. And I looked at my watch. I figured, you know, diaper change, feeding, something to that effect. And she'll take care of it, right? Because it's, care of it. it's yep. her hours. Exactly. So I try to go back to sleep, but five minutes go by, he starts screaming again. Then he stops. Then it starts again. This went on for about 20 minutes until I finally got up and I walked into his room. She had him swaddled inside the crib, sleeping on his back, right? Tummy side up. She had her hand on his tummy and was kind of like wiggling him back and forth, trying to shush him and get him to calm down. And he was not having it. So she picked him up, put her, put him on her shoulder, like in a burp position. And that seemed to make him stop screaming. And then I walked into the room and I'm like, anything happened? Is he okay? And she showed me an empty bottle. And she said, I just fed him. He's really gassy. And I said, okay, you know, fair enough. Babies get gassy. And at this point, 530 in the morning, he's not stopping. And again, I'm home alone. My 20 month old is sleeping right across the hallway. I'm like, I don't want to wake up the 20 month old. So I told her, you know, he's obviously not going back to sleep. I'm already awake. You can, why don't you just leave and I'll take it from here. So she left the house at that point and I unswaddle him check for rashes, leakage, you know, anything you could think of with a newborn baby, no signs of anything on the exterior. So I undressed him. I gave him skin to skin and he settled down. So I'm like, okay, you just wanted your mommy. So I go back into the bed. I doze off. Next thing I hear him screaming again. I look at the clock at seven o'clock in the morning and I'm like, okay, you're hungry. Last feeding for seven o'clock. I tried to nurse him and he would not latch on whatsoever. Like I'd never had any issues before and I thought something was strange, but, you know, kind of jaded with the gassiness that she told me, I'm like, maybe you're still gassy, maybe nursing strike, maybe colic, you know, Dr. Google, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't think much of it. I just kept holding him, got my 20 month old son. He woke up at that point trying to get the morning routine going and I could just, I could not lay him down flat. If I was holding him up on my shoulder, he was fine. Okay. If I laid him down, he was screaming. So I'm just like, what is wrong with this kid? I don't know. Do you just want to be held? Right. So I'm walking around the house, holding him six hours go by, would not feed, would not nap, would not stop crying. I'm like, what is wrong with you? I don't know what's wrong with you. I call my mom, like, mom, can you come over stay with David, my older one? So I can take this one to the pediatrician, Lucas call the pediatrician's office. They say, we won't be able to see him till three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, no, he's been screaming since four o'clock in the morning. He's not eating. He's something's wrong with him. I got to see somebody. 
So she says, okay, then take him to the emergency room. So everybody hops in the car, my mom, my 20 month old son, seven week old baby and me. And as soon as we start driving, what does the baby do? Falls asleep. <laughs> no more screaming. <laughs> Seems perfectly fine. <laughs> but I go there. I tell the receptionist what's going on. They do take me right away into the back room. Nurse comes in, checks the vital signs. Everything seems fine. And again, at this point, he's sleeping. He's not doing anything anymore. Doctor comes in, asks me again what happened. Tell him the symptoms. He tells me to lay the baby down flat on the bed. And he walks away. And I'm like, okay, great. Going to tell me to give him Benadryl and go home. <laughs> but he walks away. He stops right at the doorway, which is about 10 feet away from the bed. And he just stands there underneath the doorway with his arms crossed and is just like laser focused on my son. And the whole room is quiet. I'm like, this is weird. You know, and I'm looking at my son. I don't see anything. And the doctor starts walking towards the bed again. And he puts his hand right behind, right to his head, right behind his left ear. He said, did you feel this? said, no. So he grabs my hand, places my fingers there. It's like, do you feel that? Feel the bulge? I said, yeah. Says that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> like it could be spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now to see what's going on. And as soon as he says that, about 10 people rush into that room. They start placing the probes on the baby. They raise those rails up and they bolt down the hallway to the CT room. And as we're running down there, his right arm starts twitching. And then the nurses really start running. And I look up at the nurse, I'm like, is this normal? And she nods her head, no. And then me having seizures, I'm like, oh, left side of the brain, right arm twitching, he's having a seizure. First thing that comes to my mind is, oh my God, I gave it to him, right? It's hereditary, his genetic, said a little prayer right there. I'm like, Lord, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. They go to the room, tell me to wait outside few minutes go by. And again, my husband is out of state. I'm texting my husband, has no idea what's going on. He's in airplanes, meetings, my 20 month old son bouncing off the walls. My mom is there with me and we're just in shock, right? We're just texting everybody. Everybody just start praying. I don't know what's going on. Doctors come back. Miss Bruno, this is very serious. I'm like, okay, take me into the back room where all the monitors are. And they show me the images. Like your son has a cranial fracture and the fluid that's leaking is blood. The brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now, see if we can drain the blood and fix the fracture. Then they start handing me all the liabilities. Are you against blood transfusions? Are you against, I'm like, I don't care what you have to do, save my son, save my son. And off they go, wheeling off my seven week old baby into brain surgery. So I'm just there with my mom. And again, we're both in shock. I think at that point, the word fracture didn't really register with me. I thought, you know, he's a newborn. The cranium isn't completely formed yet. Like did one of those flaps pop open blood due to an aneurysm? Like it never crossed my mind that this could have been done maliciously or on purpose or anything. So four hours go by surgeon comes back and Ms. Bruno, everything went well clinically. As far as we're concerned, we were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. I'm like, okay, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And the doctor says, we really don't know. Due to his young age, we don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. So we have him in a medically induced coma right now due to all the seizures he was having following the surgery. He's stable, but we are monitoring him for the next 48 hours. So, you know, I just kept getting all this information. You know, it seemed like one thing after another. I go up to the PICU. 
and I see my seemingly lifeless baby. You know, he had gauze wrapped all around his head, had tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. Those rooms are very cold, sterile, you know, and I just hold that little hand. And I remember praying and saying, God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And the Holy Spirit at that point said, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. I said, you're right, Lord. He is yours. I have to surrender my son's life to you. There is no better place for him to be than in your hands. And sigh of relief, the peace that surpasses all understanding somehow <laughs> in that room, in my heart. And I turn around, go to logistics mode, right? I'm not leaving the hospital, spending the night here. My mom is still there with my son. Call my friend, pick up my mom, take my son. Going to spend the night at grandma's house. Still communicating with my husband on his way straight from the airport to the hospital. And while I'm doing this, I hear the door slide open. And there's a man in a uniform, a khaki uniform, a lady beside him with a clipboard. And they say, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? I thought it was strange, like, look like a police officer, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what happened to your son was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. I'm like, okay. Like, we want to help you. Will you help us figure out how this happened to your son? So in my mind, like bullet to the head, like, are you accusing this woman of having tried to kill my son? And will you help us? Then you obviously don't think it was me. You're here to help me. So go ahead, sit down, tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning till now it's around 830 at night at the hospital. Were they aware at this point that you had a nanny who was caretaking prior to your bringing the baby in? Yes, they were. Okay. So he just asked me, um, why didn't you call 911? I said, because I didn't know what was wrong with him. She told me he was gassy. Like, why did it take you so long to come to the hospital? And like, again, I thought he was gassy. Like, why did you bring him to a hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? I'm like, cause this is the children's hospital that I know. <laughs> so he's just jotting things down. And I think it's funny. I mean, would the emergency room really want us coming in for every prolonged period of crying? I mean, that's not within our, you know, like we just don't do that. There's a lot of factors in that. We try to work through troubleshoot, problem solve. And then there comes a point when you say, okay, this is beyond me. Now there's some things that you see. If you see a bone poking out of skin, you're like, okay, I need to go deal with this with somebody else. It's beyond me. But sometimes you just don't know. And you have to work through the scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. And he kept asking me, what do you think happened? And I said, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't there. I was sleeping. He was with the nanny. What do you think happened? Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know Cause I still had it in my head, like bullet to the head. I'm like, I'm not going to speculate about what this woman did. I don't know. So, you know, then the social worker asked me, do you have any other children? I said, I do. What are their names, their ages? So I tell her my son with my mom and she says, it is, is it okay if we go see him? At this point, again, I think these people are here to help me. I have nothing to hide, right? I know my son is fine with my mother. So I tell her, yeah, go ahead. Call my mom, tell her the social worker is on her way. And I tell the social worker, you know, this is nine o'clock at night. He's probably asleep by now. And she says, we're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. So I said, okay. 
So she leaves at this point. The police officer asked me to wait for the detectives, that the detectives are on their way and they would like to speak to me as well. I said, okay. My husband arrives. Police officer takes my husband to another room, asks me to wait for the detectives in another room and closes the door. So in hindsight, we can kind of see what was going on. But at that moment, I had no idea what was going on. Had you contacted the nanny at all throughout this day? I did when I was waiting, when he was in surgery and I was waiting for the surgery to be done. I did call her and I asked her, you know, anything happened last night? Like, remember all that fussiness this morning? Well, now I'm here. He's having brain surgery. (laughs) And she said, no, nothing happened. The only thing I could think of is maybe his head hitting the rail of the crib. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) but I left it at that. And, you know, then all this happened, then it's later at night. So the police officers are interviewing my husband. They make me wait in another room. The detectives don't show up until midnight. And they, quote, interview me. They made it a point of telling me this is not an interrogation. This is an interview. You are free to walk out anytime. But we really want you to cooperate. We're happy to help you and all this stuff. I'm like, okay. So I sit there, tell them all this same questions, the same thing. And they interview me till two o'clock in the morning. And I tell them, you know, I've been up since four o'clock the previous day. It's now two o'clock the next day, almost 24 hours awake. I really need to go get some sleep. I don't want to have any seizures now. (laughs) So they were very nice to me, gave me their business cards and told me to call them when I wake up, go to bed, wake up 10 o'clock. And my husband is just staring at me, this blank stare on his face. And my first instinct is to look at the baby, look at the bed, like he's there, he's alive. What, what happened? And he tells me they took David. I'm like, what do you mean they took David? They, she lied to me. Like she said, they weren't even going to wake him up. Where, who, like, we don't know where he is. They showed up at two o'clock in the morning at your mom's house with three police cars and they took David. So I call my mom and I ask her what happened. And she says, yeah, they came in here, opened the refrigerator doors, see if we had food, walked through the house, asked me where the child was sleeping. I told her she turned on the light, wakes up David, asked me to get him out of the crib, undress him. She searches for any rashes or any bruises, any signs of abuse. And she admits to my mom, you know, there, there are no signs of abuse, but we're going to take him. And my mom says, no, you're not. And the social worker says, well, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. Now there's three police officers standing right there. None of them say a word. And my mom is just standing there. She's like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And the social worker says, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. So it's two o'clock in the morning. Lawyers are not picking up their phones. There's all this commotion going on in the street. They're on their phone saying we're calling for backup and, you know, doing all this basically psychological, you know, a lot of psychological stuff with you. You're already emotional. You don't know what's going on. And my mom says in her mind at that time, it would have been less traumatic to give my son to the social worker as opposed to have the social worker rip him from her arms. So she gave my son to the social worker. He's kicking and screaming, would not get in the car seat. My mom had to go there, strap him in the car seat. And they drive off in the middle of the night. And here we are the next day or that same day. And we don't know where he is. They won't answer their phones. The supervisors won't answer their phones. So we divide and conquer. My my husband keeps calling social services. I decide to call lawyers. 
I had to call about 10 different lawyers until I finally got one who understood the system had worked with CPS before and would take my, my case. You know, he told me to come to the office that afternoon and I go there and I'm like, where is my son and where the heck do I go get him? And he says, sit down. You have no idea what you're in for. And I'm like, I didn't do this. And he's like, I believe you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, they can't just come in here and take my kid away. And he's like, yeah, they can. I'm like, what happened to constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he says, this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. And I'm like, what other law is there? He said, they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. I'm like, what? How is it in the best interest of the child to pick him up at two o'clock in the morning and take him? You know, then I go off on a rant and he like slams his fist on the table. <laughs> and he's like, listen to me. What happened to your son is criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail and a hundred thousand dollar bail if they decide to charge you. They're not going to give your kids back to you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do this. And he's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I go into that courtroom and I ask the judge to give the children back to you, social services is going to pull this up. And he pulls up the criminal investigation. And they're going to show the judge and they're going to say, Your Honor, this woman is under criminal investigation. You are placing the children at risk by giving them back to their mother. And if that happens, they're going to go to foster care. They are under two years old, nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm just, I'm, I'm like, what, what country am I living in? Like, what is this? You know, I went from jail to adoption to never getting my kids back without ever having a trial, without proof, without anything. And he's like, yeah. And then he tells me, and I'm like, so what are you telling me? What, what, what am I supposed to do? Like your saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. So we're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. But if that happens, they're going to kick you out of the house. So what choice did I have, right? Go into that courtroom and fight for my supposed rights, which are non-existent apparently and risk them being placed with strangers and adopted or being placed with their father and do what you want to me, but leave my kids alone. You are living one of the worst nightmare scenarios for a mother. Yes. It was insane. It was crazy. And I'm like, you know, you don't know whether to cry, whether to go punch somebody, <laughs> you know, so many emotions at that point. And I still had my baby in the medically induced coma, which I didn't know whether he was going to live or not. Right. And, and I would, another thing, just as being a nursing mom through those years, yeah. your body is also still in mothering mode. So yeah. you're, I mean, I'm just thinking the milk's coming in, you're going yeah. through all that physical process of it. Yeah. Overwhelming, overwhelming. Total so like within 24 hours, 12, less than 24 hours, everything was just gone, right? They took away my kids. My lawyer's telling me I'm going to kicked out of the house. I'm not going to be able to see my husband because my husband is now taking care of the children. It was crazy. It was crazy. So you were able to secure a lawyer mm -hmm. and you, you started to walk through the path then of how are we going to get them back and be able to reunite our family? Right. 
So after I met with the lawyer, we have what they call the 72 hour hearing. It's an emergency hearing. And I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy, right? Where a judge is there, you talk, you talk, you talk. <laughs> and I get in that courtroom. The nanny is not there. The detectives aren't there. The social worker is not there. The police officers aren't there. The only person on trial is me. So I'm in that courtroom and I'm waiting for the judge, you know, to at some point ask me what happened. That never comes. That moment never comes. The next time I hear my name is Bruno. Do you have any objections? So what? Then my lawyer fills in any objections to the children living with their father. I said, no. Mr. Bruno, any objections? No. And he says, okay, Ms. Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. You will, you are court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. That quick. 15 minutes, everything was done. You know, and I leave that courtroom sobbing with my mom, sitting there in the hallway. And my lawyer is like, I told you this is going to happen. I still don't believe this is happening. <laughs> so I go home, take everything out. He's like, you don't leave one toothbrush in your house. Hey, they're going to go in and inspect your house. You don't leave any traces of yourself in that house so that they can't use anything against you. I'm like, okay. I went in there with my friend, donated half my wardrobe. Know the other boxes. My neighbor was gracious enough to let me leave all the stuff in his house. And I'm like, where am I supposed to live now? They wouldn't let me live with my mom because she was with my son when he was seized. They wouldn't let me live with my husband because now the children are going to be with my husband. And my whole family's in Brazil. I'm an only child. And my attorney's like, okay, as long as your son is in the hospital, you could stay in the hospital. It's a monitored facility. They can't kick you out. Like, okay. <laughs> so I went to spend the night at the hospital. I stayed two nights there. And my mom went to our church and asked for the pastor to come pray for us. He was out of the country, but his wife came. She came to the hospital, prayed for my son, prayed for me. And she looked at me and she said, I've been praying. And God told me you're coming home with me. Mm. So at this point, I knew them. I'd been going to the church for about six years, but she invited a stranger into her house. Right. And she took me under her wing. I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point to pray with me, to laugh with me, you know, and to just guide me because they, they completely isolated me. Right. They wanted me isolated from my family. And they had given me seven hours of monitored visitation with both my sons. And in that child abuse class, I was thinking I'm going to be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholics, tattooed, pierced up, crazy people. <laughs> And when I get there, everybody's in the same boat that I was. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I start telling my story and they could complete my sentences. Like, wow. So this, as much as you felt like it was an isolated incident, you were finding that there was a lot of this going on. Yeah. Which was crazy, crazy to me. And now I'm in there and they like, let me guess, non-accidental blood force trauma. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what they diagnosed my son's injury as, and who was it? Dr. Wong. I'm like, yes, it was Dr. Wong. <laughs> and my caseworker is the same as your caseworker. I mean, it was crazy. And as I'm listening to these stories, I'm like, nobody intentionally abused their child. Like there were bathtub accidents. There were playground accidents at the park. There were disgruntled exes. There were teenagers who were doing inappropriate things on Instagram. The parent disciplines them child abuse. 
And I'm like, why? Like, why do they have, why would they be doing this, right? This is not what this system is supposed to be doing. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's a fine line, I think. I, I think that we all want children to be protected. And we feel like we have a child protective services for a very good purpose. It is to protect children. But mm-hmm. there kind of comes this line where, at what point are we not protecting children? At what point are we traumatizing and damaging children? And, and like you said, not respecting um, the constitutional rights and the innocent until proven guilty. And so that that's a hard thing. I mean, our hearts lie to protect the child, protect the child, but there is a lot of damage done when there is this knee jerk reaction without any sort of evidentiary um, proof. And so I I really want to get to when you got them back, you know, because that is like, I really want to get to when you got them back. But what the other thing I'm seeing as you tell this is the beautiful place of community where this pastor's wife did bring you in and minister to you. And that is what we're supposed to be doing, you know, where, where would you have gone? So I, I love that, that she, she brought you in under her wing and it was not just providing a physical bed and, and some bread and water. Uh, Like you said, she prayed with you and she ministered to your heart as you walked through this terrible situation. Well, let me tell you, there were so many people, you know, like I said, my family's in Brazil. And when my husband, when the children went home to my husband, how was my husband supposed to work and take care of the children? So my mother-in-law in Brazil, along with my aunt and my cousin, my mother-in-law paid for their tickets so that they would come to America and stay at our house and take care of our children. So I'm like, my cousin is a dentist in Brazil. And she says, I don't care. I'll tell my clients to go. I'll refer them to my, to my friend, but I'm coming. And my aunt had never been on an airplane before in her life (laughs) and decided to come here. Mm -hmm. And the church in Brazil, they knew my family. They knew my dad. I had a congregation, probably about 5,000 people. And the pastor told everybody to stand up, point their hands towards the north, and we're going to pray for this family. And they started fasting that day. And on the day that I had a hearing, it had been 40 days and 40 nights. I had a hearing on the 40th day. And my attorney tells me, don't come to court today. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. The criminal case is still open. Don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I'm like, he's been right about everything all along. But then I tell my husband, he's like, I don't care what he says, we're going. So we go to the courthouse and we wait there outside the the hallway for probably about two hours. And then my attorney calls me. He's like, where are you? I'm at the courthouse. Like I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. Then hangs up on me. And I'm like, okay, great. Text everybody in Brazil, in the States, in Switzerland, in Africa. I mean, the whole world (laughs) was praying. (laughs) And he comes down the hallway. I go hug him. And he's like, don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. (laughs) Like, okay. He goes into the courtroom, comes back out with a stack of papers. He's like, sign this, initial this. Like, I have no idea what I'm signing. I'm just trusting God and my attorney at that point comes in and out, in and out, in and out for about three hours, finally comes out with about 700 pages. And he said, okay, here's the deal. There's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the social workers narrative, the police reports, the medical records, the services you've been taking, your evaluations. If you sign this document, the way it is written, they will let you go home today. 
So at that point, if they told me to cut my leg off, I would have done it, right? I just wanted to be with my family. So I signed the papers and he looked at me he's like, I've been doing this for 23 years and I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Mm, praise God. <laughs> so how, how many, how long was this where you were living separate and from the date that they took your children to this point that you got to go home? Yeah. So it was 40 days, 40 days and 40 minutes. Okay. You know what? You said that. And I, yeah. I just no. <laughs> was thinking that from the start of people praying to the start yeah. of, yeah. Okay. Now they so, started praying that day at the hospital, that right. day that he went into brain surgery. Right. You didn't linger in that and getting a prayer no. thing going no. later. It started then. Okay. Oh, yeah. I knew that's the only thing I could do. Right. <laughs> right. So now, but now you're home Were there yeah. still charges still pending. Then there still was a trial upcoming. Yes. The case was still open. But they put us on what they call family maintenance plan, where the social worker would come to my house every month and write up a court report for the next six months. And I was still ordered to take the child abuse classes, the parenting classes, the individual counseling, what they call the services. I was still required to complete my services. And at the end of six months, it was a social worker's recommendation that the case be closed. So the case was closed six months later. This was in July of 2015. The case closed February of 2016. The criminal case closed June of 2016 for lack of evidence, right? The DA threw it out. Right. And then I started contacting a civil rights attorney. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to say was, okay, so obviously this was unfounded. There was no reason to, for them to do this. So did they decide that, oh, I'm so sorry, we made the wrong choice here and we're going to make sure we you know, pay for all those clothes you just donated because you weren't allowed to live in your home. And, and we're going to make sure that, you know, we make this right because we made a mistake. No, sir. (laughs) No, no. I contacted the civil rights attorney and I told them, you know, the circumstances, what happened. And first thing he asked is did they have a warrant when they took your son, David, from your mom's house. And I'm like, not that I know of. No. They did not have a warrant. And we looked through all the paperwork, no warrant. And when we signed the petition, right, we filed the petition that we were going to sue them. We got access to all the juvenile records, which are sealed until they're 18. But because we were suing them, we were able to get them. The juvenile records for your children? Yes. Okay. For both my children and what they did to them when this child abuse case was opened. Right. So we got the discovery documents and that was a whole other form of heartbreak reading what they did to my son, David, right? When they seized him from my mom's house at two o'clock in the morning and we didn't know where they took him, they had taken him to the children's shelter, to the county children's shelter, where they proceeded to give my son 13 vaccinations without our consent, without a court order, without the medical, nothing. So, so you would think that at two o'clock in the morning, they also did not have time to contact his doctor to see if he had previously been given those vaccinations. So I would assume that even if he was fully caught up on things, he's now had a little extra that was probably not necessary. Well, according to them, they did, I guess the systems lets you look up the medical records, the child's medical record. So they did think that he was not up to date and that's why they gave it all at once because he wasn't up to date according to the government standards. Right. Right. But us as parents with the pediatrician, the pediatrician was fine with us spacing out the vaccines and that's what he decided to do. 
Right. But they took it upon themselves. They gave him 13 vaccines without our consent. They forced him through a full skeletal survey again, without a warrant, without a consent, which is basically a picture of every bone in your body. Now, my son wasn't even two years old, had just been taken away from grandma's house and he's not going to be still right on that hospital table. So they had to tie him down to be able to take the x-ray. They gave him an anal wink test, which is for sexual abuse when there weren't even any allegations of sexual abuse. So we're going through these documents and I'm like, like, why, like, why would you do this? You know, it's crazy. Right. And I'm reading what the social worker told the doctor that to make my son go through all these evasive medical exams, they said that there was a suspicion that my son had been hit against the wall. And I'm like, I never (laughs) said anything like that. And I'm like, and here it is. The other social worker said my son was fine when he was at the grandma's house. So, you know, there was just a lot of, there's no oversight. You know, they can say what they want. They do what they do in order to get what they want, to get the outcome that they want. Mm -hmm. So we sued them on the fourth amendment violation, which is illegal search and seizure, right? They didn't have a warrant. And on the 14th amendment, which is our right to privacy as a family, and that we have the right to raise our family with minimal government interference. So that case lasted, when did it start? Probably July, August of 2016. And we had the depositions. I have 28 hours worth of video of them deposing. And I got text messages of the social workers and law enforcement. One text message in particular really stood out. The social worker who came to interview me before she ever got to the hospital, she sends a text message to her supervisor saying that she's on the way to the hospital. There's an infant with a cranial fracture, has a sibling, 20 month old sibling was with the nanny per mom. And then the supervisor replies back, OMG, you think it was the nanny. And then the social worker replies back, no, think mom. Before they ever interviewed me, this was on her way to the hospital. So that was very damning evidence for them. And admitting that they knew they had to get a warrant, but they didn't, they tried to excuse it on the legal premise of exigent circumstances. Okay. So, so just tell me you won this suit, please. I did. There (laughs) you go. There you go. We we settled in December of 2018. Okay. For 1.49. 1.49 what? Million. There you go. Um, And sadly, I mean, I'm very happy for you for that, but I'm also very sad that the situation happened and, um, and we know where that money's going to come from and it's going to come from the taxpayer. Right. And so where is the punishment? So, okay. So, so honestly, we've chatted a lot about the circumstances of this. And I kind of think a lot of us are really fired up. Um, we're fired up because when you retell your story, we really realize that this could happen to any of us. And I, I did, I have a friend who, you know, of whose grandson was taken away and it was very ridiculous, similar circumstances. So what, is there anything, it just makes us as parents question, is there anything we can do to protect ourselves, to protect our rights, to protect our family in a, I mean, like before something like this happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, in my case, I should have never spoken 
to law enforcement and to social services at the hospital without the attorney. Right. I mean, it's really basic that we should know that those are our rights. So always get an attorney, always Always. have them there. You can always put off the, you know what, take the medical care of the child right now. And when my attorney is here, then we'll chat. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, if you get past that stage and you still talk to them and they show up at your house, another really moment is, you know, the no warrants, no entry. Right. Right. They used to come knocking on your house and say, we just want to speak to your child. No, you have a right to tell them, no, you're not speaking to my child. Right. You know, come back with a warrant. Doesn't mean that they're not going to get one. They probably will. But you at least have time to get your ducks in a row, to get an attorney, you know, to get a plan together before they just come and take away your children. Well, the other thing in that is it seems like it's very much um, working with our emotions. And at the moment, your emotion is telling you, I just need to fix this. And, and I I do trust our police officers. I Mm -hmm. honor them. I I'm thankful for the, that we have police officers that will run into the battle and take care of things. Um, and so I I don't want to negate that they are there for a purpose and and we celebrate their commitment to serve, but also remembering that we do have rights and Mm -hmm. that we need to maybe separate our emotions out a little bit as hard as it is, um, stay focused and think through the things we do know and the logic that we do have for these things. I know, um, HSLDA is the homeschool legal defense association. And, um, if you're a member, they send you out a little card to keep in your wallet. And Mm -hmm. it says, you know, if somebody shows up at your door, call this phone number and then do this and do this and do this. And, and you know what, even if you're not a homeschooling mom, who's listening, if you, if you are, and you're a member of HSLDA, great. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're not, I think this would be a good time to, uh, when we're done listening to this podcast, you just, uh, get out a little index card and, and put some of these steps on it, you know, say something about warrants and, uh, the right to silence and put that up in your cabinet door somewhere near. And so then if you have a situation like this, when emotion takes over, you also know, I have a little index card sitting there and you need to coach yourself through these steps. Yeah. And another thing I would say, you know, again, if they do end up getting in your life somehow document everything, admit nothing, right? So every encounter you have with the social worker, you have a little notepad, there writing down what they showed up, what they asked you, you know, what they did, everything, everything, have it documented because it will go in a file. And if you ever, if you reach the point of going to trial, you have it documented so that they can't contradict themselves, you know, against what you have written down or what you have documented. Right. And, and that is very important to do at the time of as well, because mm-hmm. our memories can, it, especially during trauma like this, our memories yeah. can kind of get fuzzy. What I also wanted to just ask you is, you know, God was with you through this. You had people praying, you had a, a base of faith going into this. How did yeah. it shape your faith? Did it, did it, did, did you doubt like, God, where are you? I mean, is this, or did you just head in solid and saying, Lord, I know you're going to fight this battle for me. Take them yeah. on. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. You know, my dad was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. So I grew up my whole life hearing, you know, God's grace is enough. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear, <laughs> you know, all these little Bible verses. And I guess I didn't really give them credit. 
right? I'm like, you know, yeah, 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 whatever. I've heard it before. <laughs> and then here I was in this moment. And I'm like, is it really enough? Right? Is God's grace enough? Can I do this? And it drew me closer to God, right? Those little pearls of Bible verses. And I remember one day, somebody really close to me called me and said, Rachel, one word keeps coming to my mind, and it's repent. And I'm like, okay, this is not the time for that. This (laughs) is not the time for that. Are you sure that's the word you're hearing? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I kind of felt like Job at that moment. Right. (laughs) But again, take it to God. Right. Right. I knew this person. God knows their heart. God knows my heart. (laughs) Right. Right. So I'm like, okay, God who sinned. (laughs) Right. And again, the Holy spirit, you know, will intercede for you. And he told me, I mean, I felt in my heart, no, nothing, my daughter, nothing, my child. You know, what you're witnessing right now is just the broken world we live in. Yeah. It's about the destruction of the family. What you're witnessing is the destruction of the family, which is what the devil has been trying to do since the day I created it. Mm. And I'm like, you're right. Cain and Abel, (laughs) Adam and Eve. And he's like, but what you are going through right now will not be in vain. I will use you. I will use your family. It's going to be for a short amount of time. I've already taken care of the children. So trust me, rest, be still, know that I'm God. And, you know, right there, that's something we fight with because uh, we think to ourselves, Lord, I'm giving you everything, but do you have to separate me from them? Um, But to know, you know, I see it from a little different perspective. I have a wide range of children, but one of them serves in the army. And I think to myself, Lord, I've given you my children, but can you just have a little extra, like, make sure you bring this one home safe and in one piece because he's diffusing bombs, you know? So I I just think to myself, oh Lord, but it, it does grow our faith as we learn to trust him and trust him for our stories. And, you know, not everybody has a happy ending and there's, that's something that we have to trust God in as well. Um, yeah, yeah if my attorney kept telling me I was going to go to jail. Right. Right. He told me like, you're lucky you didn't leave that hospital handcuffed. And, you know, like you don't talk to anybody. I was taking polygraphs and I was doing everything that I could along the side. I had the child abuse case and I had the criminal case. So I remember one night praying. I'm like, Lord, if you know, I don't understand this at all, you know, but if for some reason I go to jail and my children are with their father, you know, I trust that my children will be with their father. I pray for my husband. I pray for my children, you know, cover them, protect them. And if I have to go to jail, if there's somebody in that jail that needs to hear about you, then here I am. Right. And the word surrender kept coming up a lot during this thing. You know, I just had to surrender. And once I did, believe it or not, you actually feel relief, (laughs) you know, that you don't have to control the situation. Right now, I, I'm wondering, did, um, Lucas, is that the little one's name? Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, did little Lucas have any long-term medical effects? Is he doing fine? I want to hear how he is right now. Yep. Lucas is now in first grade and he did go physical therapy for about a year. He was on the anti-epileptic drugs for about a year and he had cranial reconstruction when he was two years old. I could put my finger here on the top of his head and feel his brain pulsing. (laughs) Oh, okay. So he has a titanium mesh there. And according to the CT scan, if you look at the image, he has about a lemon sized 
ball, you know, encapsulated in fluid that's missing. That's part of his brain that's missing. Hmm. So when the brain came into contact with the blood, it was atrophied and they actually had to suction out the blood along with part of the brain matter. So he has his brain missing. And the neurosurgeon told me, he's like, if I was looking strictly at these images, I would be very concerned for this patient, but seeing him right here live in person, I have no concerns for him whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So no, he does not have any, any, nothing. He's a normal seven-year-old jumping, screaming, bouncing off the walls, boy. (laughs) Praise the Lord. We love it. We love it. So was there anything that ever came about with the nanny? Were there any charges ever towards her or even any investigation into her? After they had already seized our children, they did go speak to the nanny. A social worker went to go speak to the nanny. And interestingly enough, her one-year-old had a bruise under her eye when social services went to her house. And she asked her, why does your daughter have a bruise under her eye? The mom said she fell off the bed when she was sleeping. And she asked her, okay, how was the baby when you left the Bruno residence? And she said the baby was perfectly fine. And that was it. And that was it. That was all she had for an interview. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So what are you doing now? What is, I know I mentioned at the beginning, you have just written a book about your story and I want to make sure you tell me your website, where you are. And I know they can find that book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the places, right? Right. Yep. My personal website is www.rachelbruno.com. My book is called Fractured Hope, Mother's Fight for Justice. And, you know, there's a lot of details in the story. I can't say it all in one hour. So the book has a lot of the good, the bad and the ugly, but it's really about my faith journey. You know, like we talked about what happened during this. Did I question God? Did I go closer to God? So I really go into that in this book. And I'm on Instagram at Rachel Bruno Speaks. I am on Facebook at Rachel Bruno Speaks. You could reach me through my website or any of the social media platforms. Now, this, sadly, I think I know the answer to this, but I would like you to tell the ladies, is there a network? Um, has this happened to other people where there's some advocacy going on? And like you said, um, once they reach out to you, if there's been a situation or, or they hear about a situation, I, I sadly think that there's probably a network of families who are talking because they've had similar situations. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately there are a lot. And even according to the government's own statistics, 87% of the cases are found to be unfounded. 87%. 87%. Wow. They fall under the umbrella of neglect, but what defines neglect? You know, poverty can look a lot like neglect, right? If the kid isn't dressed appropriately, if the house is not well-kempt, you know, things like that. And only less than 10% of the cases were due to physical abuse and sexual abuse. So chances are like one, you know, like eight out of 10 did not need to be taken. Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, I think as I look around my own house and the disarray, which is currently at my feet and on the counters and all around and, and I get a little fearful. Now I have raised uh, five children to adulthood. And so that allows me to breathe a little easier personally, because I know they're adults. I still have four at home, but you know, at least some, the ones they hit 18, you're like, Oh, good. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, now I have grandchildren and yeah. that's a whole new, you know, I think 
what do we do to be proactive, of course, but, um, but God does not want us to live in fear at all. Um, he's given us a power over fear and a sound mind. And so can you speak to encourage the women in that point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, watch who you surround yourself with, you know, the Bible talks about being equally yoked and I know it's often used for marriage, but I had those friends surround me, you know, and they knew my character. And they wrote letters to the judge. They took care of my children. I mean, they dropped everything they had in order to be around me. So, you know, look who you surround yourself with, the tribe, you know, as people like to call it. And, you know, my case was because the hospital was involved and there was a lot of things involved. But mostly at home, you know, if you surround yourself at home with your children and with people that know you, it's not very likely, you know, that something like this would happen to you. So, you know, live your life, cover your children in the blood of Jesus, the protection of the family, you know, with God. Again, God created the family. God loves the family. And yeah, you know, don't fear. Don't fear. Even now after this happened to me, you know, I have boldness inside to talk about the gospel to raise my children. You know, before, like I said, I had done everything right. I had my MBA. I had my business. I had all this stuff that society tells me I should be striving for. And then I had kids and I'm like wiping butts and sucking snot all day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, this is what my MBA is for. (laughs) And you tend to kind of resent motherhood, you know, because you're listening to the lies that society is telling you that ultimately is the devil telling you that you're not good enough or that you're too smart for this. You're too good for this. Why are you here stuck at home cleaning a house all day? And when my children got taken away from me, I could care less about my career. I could care less about diplomas. I could care less about corporate meetings. I could care less about anything. I just wanted to be a mom. Right. And that's the most important job you'll ever have in your life. You know, it's cliche to say that, but it's true. And, you know, those are your little treasures, you know, take care of them, love them, teach them God's way. And I think that's one of the other reasons we're under attack because the devil knows we're the ones who are going to prepare these little warriors for the kingdom, for God's kingdom. So cover yourself too in prayer and don't listen to that third voice who's always trying to get in our head. (laughs) Yeah. Now it actually makes me see you as even more of a warrior in the fact that your children are still little, but you have not allowed this event to make you cower in the corner and hide under a rock. You are you're even more empowered to speak truth and to share what's going on, um, what has been going on. And that is part of your testimony. It's part of your story of faith. And it is an encouragement, you know, for the couples, the families that are listening, it, it is a scary thing. And by having Rachel on here, I do not at all mean to scare you, but to equip you and to prepare you to be on our guard and then to be praying for our family, because we know it is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities that we fight. And so Rachel, could you just close us out in a word of prayer? Absolutely. Say, dear Lord, we enter your presence right now, Lord. And I just want to thank you for the blessing that is a family that you put together. You know, you don't make mistakes. You chose each and every one of us to be their moms, to be their dads. Lord, I pray for your real of protection over every single one of them. Everyone that's listening, Lord, if there's fear in their hearts, 
Lord, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. If there is resentment in their lives, Lord, show it to them. Show their hearts and show them their true worth as mothers. And this world that we're living in, you know, that wants to tear the family apart, Lord. There's so many things against us right now, but we know you are greater. You are stronger than everything, Lord. And we trust you. We put our children in your hands. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you are enjoying this podcast, then please take a minute and write a review, leave some stars, some thumbs up, share this episode. It helps it to be more visible to other people. I hope that you've been encouraged or challenged in your faith today and that something we discussed prompts you to grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. If it has, make sure you tell a friend so they can grow along with you. And if you or a friend would like to be a guest and share about God's faithfulness in your life, please email me at podcast at tendingfields.net. Because when we tell of God's faithfulness, we never run out of stories. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, be all these things.